and welcome to another edition of Tarvalon Talks. I'm Dahl, and I'm joined by Diana and Thad. In today's discussion, we'll talk about Season 1, Episode 2 of Amazon's Wheel of Time. We will try to keep the bulk of our episodes spoiler-free past Books 1 and 2 of the series, but we will spend a portion of the end talking about foreshadowing and spoilers in each episode of our discussion. All right, we start with the white cloak cold open, which, oh my god, so bone-chilling. They did an incredible job making the white cloaks terrifying in the show. Yes. Specifically, Valda, specifically. Yeah. God, he's awful. You learn immediately that this is not a good man. I have a fun fact about this scene. The bird that he eats is actually a real dish in the real world. And it's called an Orlan bunting, which is the type of bird. And in France, if you're eating it, or it's served in France, if you're eating it, you have to wear a napkin over your head. Some claim that that's because you have to like have the aroma come through and you don't want to lose it. But others claim that that's because the, the dish is so decadent that you can't eat it under the eyes of God, which I thought for Emin Valda in particular was so cool because it's like such a cool way to show that he's like just even though he thinks he's righteous like he's actually totally not that's interesting i read that in an anthony bourdain book once he explained that so putting the napkin over the face and you kind of have to eat it that way that's wild and this episode of wheel of time is specifically mentioned in the bird's wikipedia page because of this scene what's the name of this dish the bird is called an orlan bunting and it has like a section on like eating it and then specific scenes in media where this thing is eaten and the wheel of time scene is in it. Yeah, there it is. Noted meals. An unnamed bird is eaten whole in the fashion of the Orland bunting without a napkin covering the character's head in season one, episode two. My friend is a big foodie. And when we were watching the episode together, he brought that up and I was like, oh, learned something new today. But this scene, oh my God, this scene is so cool. So scary. So beautifully shot. Oh, everything. I love this cold open. I love it too, because... We, you know, we we see the yellow with her hands cut off. Which is such a weird thing, because the hands aren't really necessary for channeling. But they are in the show. They talk about that. Yeah, they talk about, like, it's kind of a known fact, I guess, that you have to use your hands to do it. Because in later episodes, you know, because, you know, in the episode one, we see Moraine whipping her body around and waving her hands and stuff. Valda actually says it's not. He goes on, like, I think in a later episode to say pretty much, I don't believe that that is true. So one thing that we should talk about with the show is the show heavily, heavily leans into the unreliable narrator. Um, so, like, Moiraine talking about the breaking in the beginning is explicitly Aes Sedai propaganda and is obviously not the breaking from the book. And it's because she's unreliable. Having to use, like, being like, oh, yeah, it is a known fact that, like, I said I have to use their hands to channel. Is I probably, like, an Aes Sedai thing? I think it is actually an Aes Sedai crush in the, or not crush, crutch in the books that they do use their hands. And there are other channelers who we see who don't. And they're like, oh. But, like, so I do, I like it. I also found it way more believable that, like, I said I would need to use their hands, and so you would cut their hands off. Because otherwise, I'm like, how are the White Cloaks, like, catching all these I said I out there? Fork root. I, yeah, I suppose. But, like... Do, do they know about it? Because in the books, it's not even a known thing until well later on. Yeah. Like, it just didn't make sense. It's part of why the White Cloaks are, like, not scary to in the books. But, like, if they have a set way that they catch them, like, a process that they follow to catch them, which includes, at one point, probably, like, knocking them unconscious and then cutting their hands off so they can't channel. Catching them in their sleep. Yeah. 
that killing their warders to like incapacitate them. I could see that totally being part of their process. And I loved that. Yeah, I think it remained to be seen how he's catching them. He has to incapacitate them somehow to begin with. He has to get close enough to cut their hands off somehow. Of course, she can't do anything until her life's in danger. But if her life's in danger, she just snap his neck with air or hit him with some rocks, throw a in at him. Yeah, we see the opening then after the White Cloak scene. I'm maybe one of the few people who wishes this opening song was better, but that's only because Lauren Balfi, the composer, also composed the His Dark Materials theme and a lot of other themes. He's done a lot of other things. But specifically, the His Dark Materials opening theme is such a banger that I was kind of expecting a little bit more from this one. It's grown on me. I honestly cannot remember it. That's not a good sign. I think the theme is a riff on... Moiraine's theme, which I don't think they're going to change, but I would love for them to change at some point to be a riff on Rand's theme now that Rand is the dragon and the main character. I don't think they're going to do it, but I would love that. That would be really interesting. Like, those are the kinds of detail that makes sound design so interesting. I don't think I call it that, like, honestly, because like, it's not sticking in my head. Neither Rand or Moiraine's theme are sticking in my head. I love the soundtrack, and I could literally do a one-woman podcast on just the soundtrack for season one. I am obsessed. I need to go back and listen again. I think the soundtrack's beautiful. I bought the soundtrack. I think it's beautiful. But it's not sticking. Like, I don't know why. We should do an episode on the soundtrack, and then let me wax poetic. So, after the opening, then we get to the Terran Fairy scene. Yes. Do you want to talk about it, Dom? Well, I guess this is in the book, so it's not going to be a spoiler problem. This is another scene where I suspect, and I can't find any evidence to back it up other than my suspicion. In the book, right before they get to uh, Terran Fairy is when Rand is channeling to boost Bella's speed so that she keeps up with the rest of the horses. And then we do not explicitly see Moraine sink the boat. In fact, it just mysteriously starts sinking in a whirlpool. We see the scene from Rand's perspective, and he makes a big deal about the fact that the Terran doesn't have whirlpools. And a very clear Moraine move when Master Hightower says something about whirlpools on the Terran. There's no whirlpools on the Terran. Moraine just looks up and says, in a complete straight face, that is an unfortunate circumstance. And then Land says, unfortunate. And Rand has a thought, it's just a coincidence, right? And then he's distracted. And I still, to this day, suspect that Rand sunk that theory. Because he was afraid that Hightower was going to take it back across so that he could catch more people and get more money. And he sunk it to keep him from it. And Maureen did her I said I thing by making no value judgment. But, you know, I'm pretty sure Maureen knew that Rand was responsible too. I feel like we talked about this back in the day, but I can't find anything online about it. But I, I, I specifically looked it up before we started talking just so that I could refresh my memory on it. So that's obviously a big change in how it went down in the, the show when Maureen's explicitly woo-woos and the fairy goes down and then Hightower jumps in after it and dies. Well, in the books, he seemed a little bit more greedy, but in the show it was, my son's coming. What was he going to do? If he went back over there, he just would have died. There was no going back and like taking on a hundred Trollocs by himself. And a fade. And that fade. Oh my god, the fade. So scary. Because that's like the first real look that we got at one, right? The first out open, like, with the hood off. 
With the scream. Yeah, we see it creeping earlier, but this is where we actually get to see its eyeless gaze. Interestingly, every time a fade shows up, we hear the whistle that will eventually be associated with Pat and Fane, which I love. I think that's a really cool detail. Really? I think I missed that. Yeah, in episode one, he like, it's like the fade, and then they immediately cut to Pat and Fane. Interesting. I don't think he whistles yet. I think the first whistle was at the fair. No, he, he's whistling. He's like mid-whistle. Is he mid-whistle? Yeah. I can't remember if he heard it or not, but you see the fade and it cuts to Fane and he slips away. As Fane tends to do. Yeah. There's also whistling in episode three because I watched episode three, but I'm not on that podcast. So listen for it. There's another whistle in this one too. Yeah. In episode two, the whistle is when the fade comes up again. Two whistles in the Oh, there's a second one. If there's one, there's one at the ferry and there's one in Shadow. Oh, that's right. That, that Okay, that's the one I was talking about that I thought happened in episode three. Cause I okay. But yeah, yeah, yeah. There's one in episode two. We don't see him in Shadow Logoth, but we hear the whistle. Which is great foreshadowing. Then we get, then there's a conversation between the two Rivers kids. Um, and then we get the three oaths. We get Moiraine training Egwene and we get the three oaths explicitly. Oh, yes. so good. Rosamund Pike's incredible delivery of them. Yeah, it was a really good way of doing it, like an exposition without sounding clunky. Her being like, words are important. What is the exact wording? So crucial to understanding the eyes that I. And then she nails it in a little bit further in a couple more scenes. Mm-hmm. After she talks about them. And McQueen's like, I thought you couldn't lie. She's like, I didn't lie. I just didn't tell the truth you thought I said. That was just such a good line. Like, I just didn't say the truth you thought you heard. Which is just, that's Aes Sedai in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. That is their whole, like, their whole subtitle. We also get a creepy Ishamayel nightmare. I thought we were not going to get Ishamayel nightmares in the show. I love that they have them in the show. This one is my favorite. It's so creepy. Did we see Ishamayel in this one? or did He was, like, at the very end, he, like, fades out of the forest. Okay. You can find him in all of the dreams. Yeah. And this one ends because he goes close to the camera and it's like, Ugh! and then Rand wakes up. Yeah. And then and then Rand pulls the bat out of his mouth. Ugh, so gross. And I like how they kept up the, well, I won't say the illusion of who the dragon is going to be because, you know, even Egwene was just like, you had that dream too? When in the book, it was always just the boys. Part of me was wondering, like, did Egwene actually have the dream? Or was she, because she was talking to Perrin. I would think Egwene would have the dream because we know from a later episode that the Dark One is also not sure which of the five of them it is. And they explicitly say the five. Okay. Yeah, you're right. The other thing I wrote down was, are we sure Perrin had the same dream? Because he says the man with eyes like embers. He does not say burning eyes. He says eyes like embers. And now I'm wondering, and, and and he actually did not have the same dream in the books because the wolves were protecting him. Well, and Matt has a slightly different dream than Rand because he sees the bats with their necks snapped. Yeah, they all have slightly different dreams, but Perrin specifically, the wolves were protecting him from Balsamon. I'm wondering if now, is this man with eyes like embers Elias? He's not in the show explicitly, but... Not yet. He's going to be in season two. I'm wondering if... That was some foreshadowing that they are going to bring Elias in. Because he did not say he had fire for eyes or his eyes were burning. He said he had eyes like embers, which are glowing yellow eyes, much like he has at the end of another episode. Very interesting. I like this theory. I know. Like, am I reading too much? Am I looking for too much? Am I watching just too many times? (laughs) No. 
Maybe on that one you're reaching just a little bit, but who's to say, right? I, it just so specific the way he said it. And he's like, and you saw the man with eyes like Ember. And it was just the way he said it and the emphasis he put on it. I assumed he was seeing Ishamel, but... I, and I think that was what we were supposed to think in the books, too, but he wasn't. Hmm. He was already talking to Elias before he met him. So I think that was very sly reference to the fact that that a parent started talking to the wolves in the streams because they were protecting him from a shot male. Could be. Because we do see the wolves in one of his later dreams. So but I think that's episode three. Was that a dream? Yeah. It's it's shot it's shot just like a dream. Is it? And a male's in it. So it's definitely an E. It's definitely a dream. You'll, when you guys watch episode three and four, like you'll you'll get there. Oh, we're talking about. Oh, okay, okay. I thought you were talking about the scene in this episode where the wolves. Oh, sorry, yeah, no. I'm like that wasn't a dream. No, the that the wolf scene, which we can just jump to the wolf scene. That is not a dream. Those are real wolves. There's Hopper. Good boy, Hopper. Yeah, is it Hopper or Dapple? It's definitely Hopper. They said that that's Hopper. The show creators say that's Hopper. I wanted it to be Dapple. I like Dapple. I do like Dapple too, but I'm pretty sure it's Hopper who licks his injury and heals it. That's what I wrote. I'm like, did he heal Parent's leg? Like, is that a thing wolves can do? He must have because we never see it again. He never complains about it again in the rest of the show. No. After he licks it, that's that's the last we see of it. Yep. I don't understand the point of him having an injury he was hiding. Were they trying to say that he was turning into a werewolf and that was his werewolf bite? I thought it was a trollic wound. I thought so too. But like he's not being affected by it the way Tam was. I don't know. Again, I really feel like they struggled with Perrin. They're like, we don't know what to do with this kid. He has so much internal monologue. How do we externalize said monologue? And they like couldn't do it. Well, you know how I feel about that. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, then we get them running to Shadar Lagoth. And the only time that Bella is explicitly mentioned, but at least she's mentioned. I wrote that down. I'm like, Bella! And three exclamation points. Oh, and speaking of sound design, the sound design for Shadar Lagoth is so cool. It's silent the second that Lan enters the city. There's no background noise. So are we going to skip the Minethrin song before going into Shadar Logoth? Oh, I completely did. Yes, be- yes, we must because all of my thoughts of- on the Minethrin song are all spoiler related. Okay, so we can save that to the end here. Yeah, yeah. The detail in the sound design for Shadar Logoth was amazing. Spot on. So good. The second you walk in, there is nothing. The only sounds you hear are the ones the party is making themselves. No music, no birds, no atmosphere, nothing. Like, it is creepy, creepy, creepy. Yeah. Where this episode really hits its stride, I think, is the Shadar Lagoth stuff. Like, the sound design, Lan is starting to look significantly more haggard because Moirena is getting sicker and sicker. We have Matt being so snarky. This is some of the best Matt dialogue by far. Jumping back when he says, I don't know about you, but I'm going to go with the lady that shoots fireballs. Yeah, which is the first line we ever heard them say because that was at the table read that they showed us. When he's like, first of all, that's more words than you've spoken this entire time. Maybe ever. <laughs> Just <laughs> such a good Matt line. Secondly, why did we come here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we see Mashadar, we hear the whistle. Oh yeah, you're, yeah, you're right. I do have the whistling when we first see Mashadar in my notes. Matt finds the dagger in a way that makes much more sense than in the books. Yeah, I wrote down, Lan says, don't touch anything. What does Matt do? Immediately touches Immediately everything. touches stuff. Immediately. 
Yeah. But at least he's A, poor. B, bo- okay, being bored is maybe not a defense. But he's poor in the books, or in the show, unlike in the books where he's way too wealthy for his bad behavior. And then, like, is just kind of wandering around and there's, like, a shaft of light that falls on it. And he's like, oh, this is interesting. And right as he picks up the dagger is when Mashadar starts to attack the horses. And so he, like, I think kind of just, like, takes it on accident. As opposed to being like, I'm going to go wander around and uh, take a cursed, clearly a cursed dagger from a man named Mordeth. Because I don't have a single solitary brain cell in my head. (laughs) I don't know. Like, I trust people named Mordeth. In a city that's explicitly cursed. In the books, the boys get led down into the depths of Shadar Logoth with a ton of treasure, and he goes, please, take, you know. Yeah. Just take it. It's here. It's great. It's here for you. Like, no, Matt. Don't take it. Do not talk to somebody named Mordeth. <laughs> please don't. Um, and, like, the the run through Shadar Logoth and the kids getting separated from Wyrian and Lan and from each other is so the poor good. horses. Poor horses. <laughs> how do you feel about how they did Meshadar visually? It's not as spooky as it is in the video game, but I like it a lot. Oh, yeah, for sure. Because in the video game, they have these tendrils that just slowly work their way towards you. I have a playthrough of me playing the video game online if people want to watch it. I never, I didn't play it, so I don't know. It's only $10 on GOG. Yep. It is hard, though. On what? Uh, good old, or, well, it used to be called Good Old Games, but they just shortened it to GOG, G-O-G.com. Oh, okay. This is not an endorsement from the official Tarvalon Talks podcast. We, we are not sponsored by anybody yet. <laughs> I'll have to check that out. I Yeah, I always imagine kind of like the fog-like tendrils that kind of separate them from the party, but this works too. I associate that more with Machin Shin, like the tendrils. Mashadar always felt more like just a, a shadow that sort of moves slowly, like mm-hmm. unnaturally, like an unnatural shadow moving. That's a great point for why they didn't do it that way, because they don't want Machinchin and Mashadar to look too similar. Because in the books, that's how they get separated. Like a, you know, like a thick tendril like separates the party, and they're just like, yeah, you go that way, we'll go this way, we'll meet back up down the river, or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I get it. Like In my head, Machinchin is tenderly, so Mashadar is more... I've always imagined it as like a fog. Yeah. Not like tendrils, of like, but like a thick fog whereas like machin shin is more like a wind like visual wind yeah smoke thanks to a an actual module of the wheel of time DD game that i played with somebody once oh you have that oh I, i've got it we, we ran a game once and, and the guy who ran the game described machin shin as basically a black tornado and I, i've never been able to get that out of my head i like that a lot I feel like a tornado is too organized, but yeah, yeah, no, it is, it is. But like every time I think of Machin Chin now, I think of just kind of like a concentrated black windy tornado. But it is what it is. Okay, I have to read my note here because Maureen wakes up and asks Lan where they are, and she says, "You killed us all." I'm like, Maureen channels Gandalf, "Flee, you fools! <laughs> You've killed us all." <laughs> really? Yeah. There's a lot of. I, we don't even have time for me to go into all of the Lord of the Rings parallels that are in these first two episodes, which I have called out in my notes. So, like, yeah. But there's so many. I, this one I had to call out because it's so, like, she does it with the inflection that Ian McKellen did when he did the, the flea, you fools. Yeah. You killed yeah. us all. She is the Gandalf of the show, so. 
She is Gandalf. Not Pat and Fane. Bunch of show only people were like, Pat and Fane is the Gandalf because he rolls in on the cart in episode one. And I was like, trust me now. Do not think that that is Gandalf. (laughs) Trust me now. The other fun thing from the end of episode two is when Egwene says to Perrin, you ready? And then they jump. It was literally the first line of dialogue from the show that they ever released. And Rafe had a, like, there was a Q&A, or not a Q&A, he had, like, a contest where he was, like, the first person to figure out what this is from will get something. And people figured it out, like, within the first 30 minutes because it was that dialogue over the attack on uh, on Edmund's Field. And he was like, oh, um, you guys are too smart. (laughs) I'm sorry, that was just a joke. (laughs) Don't (laughs) underestimate us fans. We are rabid. Yeah. Uh, we've read this way too many times my very last note is just nynaeve written all in capital letters very big like three inches tall with five exclamation points and then i'll slit your throat oh so good they nailed nynaeve they did and i have to admit like when i watched that in the theater and nynaeve popped up i literally went ha (laughs) (laughs) so loud i think like everybody in the theater heard me i went ha Yeah, that was another scene where in the theater people went like crazy and like then that was the end of episode two. And I was like, that's Mm -hmm. naive. Yeah. That's (laughs) naive. That's our fierce baby. (laughs) So now we're going to talk about foreshadowing in episode two. This section is going to contain so many spoilers for the rest of the Wheel of Time book series. If you haven't finished the series, it's been fun. Please turn us off now and join us for next time for our discussion of season one, episodes three. You have been warned. Yeah. Okay. So I feel like we should do the Manatharan speech first. I know you've been dying to do that one. Ugh. Yes. Okay. Oh my God. I wish I could like watch it in real time again and like talk about it specifically because there are so many cuts that are so important and like who is being looked at when stuff is being talked about. Matt starts the Manetheran song, which is great foreshadowing. I've always thought that Matt has the strongest old blood of the boys. I don't think that's explicitly in the books, but just because of his connection to the old generals, I always felt like that came from the old blood. He's got the old blood from being in the two rivers, which Rand does not have. But uh, he also has the memories of some of the generals from Manetheran, so he's got that connection there. Yeah. So I love that he starts the song and then kind of like who picks it up is very interesting. But specifically when Moiraine is telling the story of Manetherin, I have a couple of quotes. So she says, they went to join the army fighting for their home and the camera is on Perrin during that, which is a clear foreshadowing to the battle for the two rivers. Mm-hmm. There's a point at which they're talking about the king of Manetherin and that camera is on Rand, even though Rand is obviously not the king of Manetherin, but like he is the dragon and like, He's going to be an important leader. And then specifically when she's talking, when she says Queen Eldrine felt her husband die, it's on Egwene. And like, oh, it's so clearly a foreshadowing for her losing Gawain and then how she's going to die just like Eldrine, wielding the one power way too strongly in the last battle. It makes me cry every time. It's so good. Wow, that's a really deep cut. It's, I mean, I'm not sure deep cut's the right way. Like Massive foreshadowing? It's far foreshadowing. Yeah, it is yeah. foreshadowing. But there had been, I, I, there's nothing 
explicit in the text or even confirmed by anybody officially, but people have speculated that Egwene was Eldrin reborn. Their names are very similar too, now that I'm looking at it. It's E some things and then E N E. Mm-hmm. I like their stories are so similar. They're both very strong channelers. They're both die because they're lo- they lost their love and protecting obviously like there's a difference between fighting for the fall of Manatheran and Tarmon Gadan, but not much. Overall stakes are higher, but the immediate stakes are not. If Egwene hadn't done what she did when she did it, then the world would have been lost. And if Eldrine hadn't done it when she did it, then the Trollocs would have overrun Manatheran and further into the... It's not It's not Andor at that point in time, but the League of Ten Nations and the way Manatheran fell protected them from further overrunning the Westland. There's a lot of parallels there. And it's certainly foreshadowing that potential connection. I feel like if she wasn't already bound to the horn, she will be after. I hope so. That's what she deserves. That was such an epic. They're just going to make up brand new weaves that completely reverse Bellfire. Just, you know, on the fly. And then die and not tell anybody how to do it. (laughs) (laughs) My bad. (laughs) That's such an Egwene move, too. Yeah. (laughs) Figure it out, fools. You watched me do it one time. <laughs> That's all you get. And then she's like, peace. And then she gets encased in crystal. Oh, <laughs> incredible. We had to go out with a bang. What an icon. Yeah, that definitely went spoiler. I mean, yeah. I hope none of you were uh, still uh, listening. That didn't uh, turn it off when we told you to. Because uh... <laughs> we warned you we were going to spoil everything. We were not kidding. <laughs> Do we want to keep talking about the Manatheran scene? Because we didn't really talk about it. If you've got more to say, go for it. Um, you've basically said everything I had thoughts on it about. Nope. Just chock-a-block with foreshadowing. It's incredible. Yeah. The foreshadowing with Padun Fane, which we've already touched on to some degree. Obviously, it's extremely significant that the whistling happens as Mashadar shows up. That is the point when they merge Mordeth and Padun Fane. Like, that's when they become entwined, because that's when he starts seeking the the dagger from Matt. And it's obviously a a big factor in how Rand cleans the taint. (laughs) I'm not mature enough. (laughs) I looked at your face and I lost it. Okay, I have to say this one thing, because it's my favorite. When Moiraine says, I am a lady from a fallen house, it's not a lie. Not a lot. It's not. It's great too because, like, the first time when 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 her house name comes up in um, God, now I'm blanking on the name. The book. Yeah, in the book. Um. Yeah, I don't remember which book. Uh, yeah, I don't either. But when it comes up, I was just like, oh, oh my gosh, that's 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 you know, you kind of make the connection because you know, Demandred and House Demandred. Uh, wh- what's the guy's name? Barthane. Barthane. Yeah. Yeah, where it was like Barthane Demandred, and I go, oh, how is he related to her? He's gonna be in season two. We are gonna get. Demo Dreads in season two. Excellent. I'm I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be so interesting. Like, And that makes Maureen and Rand cousins. She is his aunt. Yeah. Yeah. Like great aunt, I think. Someone has a Wheel of Time family tree for the Emmons Field 5 plus Maureen. Plus like Elaine and all of them. It's very, it's like interesting. Very muddled. I remember when I was younger and I found out that Rand and Elaine shared a father or not really shared a father, but there was like the connecting like... Um... So Rand and Galad share a dad, and Galad and Elaine share a mom. Yes, that's what it was. That's what it was. 
So Rand and Elaine are not blood related, but they're definitely somewhere on the sibling spectrum. Right. Like step siblings, kind of ish. Is it kind of like that second cousin, first or once removed kind of thing? They share a step sibling or half sibling, but they don't share any blood. Yeah. Moiraine is also Elaine's great aunt. Oh yeah, but on a different side. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember exactly how, but yeah. Yeah, but like all royal family, like they're all cousins eventually, somehow, at least once, if not multiple times. The other thing that happens in episode two that's foreshadowing that I love, or kind of just like a hint at the characters, is Perrin asks if they'll go back, and he's the only one who does of the Emmonsfield Five, mm. and Egwene, who has no desire to go back in the books, says no. It's from the trailer, and I loved that detail. I love it, like it's those two specifically talking about it. Does Matt, Matt goes back, or no, I guess he doesn't go all the way. He goes back to the two rivers, doesn't he? I'm pretty sure Perrin is the only one who does. Yeah, maybe I'm just thinking he, he takes the two rivers people start following him. Yeah, he, the two rivers people follow him when they leave and like come out and start fighting for Rand. Rand puts them under a mat, but he doesn't go back. Perrin's the only one who goes back. They do meet again, but it's not in the two rivers, it's somewhere else. Mm-hmm. All right, okay. It gets really muddled when they start moving through gateways. Like, where is everybody? Where is everyone at all times? This is a big right. question. <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of one thing that when the companion was like originally announced, like way back in 2009, I was kind of expecting something like that to be in it because they kind of described it as not what the companion ended up being, like which was just an A to Z glossary. But I was kind of hoping to, to see like character pathing for like most of the main characters because I'm interested in stuff like that. Like, I'll pull up a map and stuff, and I'll be like, all right, you know, by the end of the book, they've done this path and stuff. And I think someone has done that online, but it is really hard to read. Oh, I, I believe it. I've seen it done for several books. I've seen one very sophisticatedly done for, I think, Game of Thrones, to where it was like, here's where all of the characters went throughout the entire, like, released books. Because I got confused at one point about the timeline because I always thought that Wheel of Time takes much longer than it actually does and so I I read through a timeline of the books and then at, they also had like a map of where everyone was but it was done book by book and that was what made me realize the series takes place over what like two years like two two and a half tops yeah I was like okay the timeline got stretched so far yeah because of the overlapping timelines we split out so many different points of view. The first three books take place in like six months, and then like the next six books are like a month. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have two books that are a week. Yeah. <laughs> same week. The same week. And then in the final book, we have one battle that takes place. And then at the same time for Rand, it's, it's yeah. like yeah. like that. Really, really short for Rand. Very long for everyone else. It's like, what, like three days to a week, depending on how far you are from the boar. I like that concept a lot. You know, I mean, from a writing standpoint, that, that that's how you kind of have to do it to make it work. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. I hope none of you were still listening that we told to stop. <laughs> Please. <laughs> I mean, at this point in time, if you didn't leave when we told you Egwene died and turned to Crystal. We warned you so much. We cannot be held liable for, being, for spoiling you. Also, Bella was not a dark friend. Bella is not a dark friend. She's the avatar of the creator. That was Nakomi. No, it's Bella. <laughs> Nakomi is Harriet. Uh, Nakomi is Harriet. <laughs> Wait, we need to make our own bumper stickers and it's going to say Nakomi is Harriet. Yes. 
Thank you very much for listening to our discussion of Amazon's Wheel of Time Season 1, Episode 2. Join us next time as we discuss Episode 3. If you have any questions or topics you'd like for us to talk about, feel free to send us an email to producertvt at gmail.com or you can join us on tarvalon.net. In our general forums, we have a special thread called Tarvalon Talks into the top of the page. You can also chat with us on tarvalon.net's Discord server and the Tarvalon Talks channel. Thank you again for listening and we'll talk to you next time.